I would invite you to turn to the book of Romans, chapter 8. If you don't know where Romans is, it's after the four Gospels, after the book of Acts, then comes Romans, and before 1st and 2nd Corinthians, the book of Romans, and then we'll be in chapter 8 of the book of Romans this morning. As you're turning there, um, in fact, as you're turning there, I'd invite you to stand with me. I'm going to read our passage this morning. I invite you to stand with me to stretch your legs and also in regard for the reading of God's word, Romans 8. Verses 31-39 What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. You may be seated. Our Father and God, we pray that you would be here among us as we have prayed that your spirit would move. We pray for us as we hear from your word in Romans 8 and as we digest it in these next few minutes, Lord, that you would um, make our hearts and minds alive to your word and to your son. We pray the same thing for our kids who are over in Children's Church. Would they hear the Easter story this morning and the resurrection of Jesus Christ? And would you build faith in them, in your Son. Thank you, Lord, that we are here celebrating the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Amen. I want to begin this Easter morning with an assumption. And the assumption is that though uh, we are here and we have happy faces on, a lot of us are dressed up, we're excited for Easter, the assumption I make is that many of us are fairly weary and tired. I make this assumption uh, because I know my own heart and mind and soul, and over the last few years, I feel the same very often. I make this assumption because of anecdotal conversations I have with people inside and outside the church that people are tired and fatigued. I make that assumption that people are burdened by the trials of the world because of what I see in the world. Uh, I make that assumption because of what data says, even about the workforce. So there is a study done, particularly studying non-profit, not-for-profit workers, conducted by the YMCA recently. A study surveying 15,000 non-profit workers found that for the last 10 years, pre-pandemic, for the last 10 years, the turnover rate amongst non-profit workers has increased every year. That people are less stable in their jobs. In 2018, 2019, 
Almost 25% of working adults, one in four people, reported that their work life was having a negative effect on their well-being. That was in 2018 and 19. By March of 2021, that number jumped to 45%, almost double. Basically, half of workers said that their work life negatively impacted their well-being. study conducted by the Harvard Business Review said that 89% of people feel as though their work life has gotten worse since the start of the pandemic. Which all just tells me that people are tired. And their work life isn't saving them from that, and in fact, making life more difficult. You can call it burnout, fatigue, unrest, happiness, whatever you want to do, but it has affected kind of all spheres of life, I believe. It has affected even missionary work. It has an effect on Christian missions. A study conducted by Missio Nexus surveyed 11 large missions organizations across North America. 11 missions organizations across North America over the period of three years sent 1,014 missionaries. So 11 missionary organizations across North America over this period of three years deployed a little over 1,000 missionaries, which we'd say, great, wonderful, missionaries are being sent out. Over that same time period, over those same three years, 974 missionaries returned from the field for a net gain of 40 missionaries over three years across 11 large missions organizations. We keep sending, but people keep returning, being burnt out, tired. And in fact, the number one reason for missionaries returning from the field wasn't lack of support, it wasn't hostility in uh, the nations they were being sent to. The number one reason was internal conflict, unhealthy relationships. All these point to the fact that we have an epidemic of people feeling tired, stressed, discontent, weary and broken down by the trials and troubles of this life. So I come in with the assumption that that is somewhat the air we breathe, and I come in on this Resurrection Sunday with good news. I come to you with good news for the downtrodden, because I have the solution. And the solution is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The solution to all of our trials and troubles in this world, all of our weariness, is found not by looking at ourselves. That's like trying to find ice cube in a fire. We don't find rest and peace by looking into where the turmoil is. You'll never find it in you. We find the solution, we find our rest and our peace in the Lord Jesus Christ who rules and reigns, who was resurrected. And I want to tell you this morning about that Lord and how we can have peace and love and the rest we want in him. I'll put it another way. Because God is for us in Christ, nothing can overcome us in the world. That's the confidence that Paul states in these verses in Romans 8. All of our troubles are nullified in the love of God in the resurrected Jesus. Because God is for us in Christ, nothing can overcome us in the world. God has shown his love for us in the cross and resurrection, and Jesus resurrected the right hand of God ensures that every trial in this world for those who are in Jesus Christ will in the end fade away and will not be able to stand against our place, our security, God's affection for us. That will win in the end. Because God is for us in Christ, nothing can overcome us in the world. I want to make that case to you through five questions that are asked in this passage. We'll very quickly, we'll go through 
five questions that the Apostle Paul, as he writes Romans, five questions that he asks that tell us that because God is for us in Christ, nothing can overcome us in the world. The first question, found in verse, verse Romans 8.31, it's a simple question. Who can oppose us? Who can oppose us? If God is for us, if God is on our side and we are in him and we are united with Christ, then who can oppose us and who can oppose God? It's a simple question. Verse 31 says, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Paul in the last few verses has been talking about the triumph that we have in Christ, that all the trouble in this world actually works, and God uses it to secure us in him. And if we're called by God, and if we have our place in Christ, then we will see him in the end, and we will be raised in glory. He's been giving us assurance of salvation, and Paul kind of concludes by saying, what else shall we say? It's kind of an introductory rhetorical question. What, what should we say to these things? He said, if God is for us, who can be against us? And in reality, several things could be against us. The world may be opposed to us if we're in Christ. I'm not saying that everybody in the world is opposed to Christians, but in the world there are those, there are forces that are against Christ and his people. The world may be against us. The devil, demons may be opposed to us. And you may be here saying, you know, that's a silly, naive belief. You believe in spiritual forces and the devil and demons. And I say, yes. If you look around this world and actually, with eyes open, look at the evil in this world and you think there isn't a devil, I would call you naive. Of course. There's spirits of evil in this world and they are opposed to Christians. And then there's the self, your own flesh, your own sin. You and you know this well, are often opposed to you. You do things that you don't want to do, and you don't do things that you want to do. Very often you find yourself opposed to you. So when you ask the question, who can oppose us? You say, well, several things can oppose us. The world, the devil, our own flesh can oppose us. But if God is for us, then the point is none of these things could possibly stand against us in the end. Uh, most of you know, or a lot of you know, I'm a hockey fan. I grew up playing hockey, and I love hockey. And I remember listening to one ex-NHL player talk about his hockey playing days. And he played in the 70s and 80s, where fighting was a bit more common than it is now. And he was starting out in his career, and he was a, a scrapper, and he was a little bit of a fighter, but not very good at it. And he recalls one moment where he was getting into a tussle on the ice, and as he was getting that tussle, he saw his opponent, his eyes all of a sudden got really wide and fearful, and he thought, I must be getting better. And as he thought that, he saw a fist go right by his face and hit his opponent. It was his much larger, much stronger teammate who took out his opponent for him. He had a strong ally, and his opponent was fearful of that ally. That is the kind of ally we have in God. We don't have the strength in our own selves to stand up to what opposes us. We, we don't have the strength in ourselves to stand up to ourselves. We need an ally, and we have that in God. If you're a Christian, you will face strong spiritual opposition. But our Lord says, he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. If God is for you, none can prevail against you in the end. The question I'll ask of you as you sit here this morning is, is God for you? 
And how do you know? Are you aligned with the living God? Or are you trying to go at this life on your own and finding it difficult? This is the big condition of everything that Paul's going to say and everything I'm going to say. This is only true if, there's the condition, if God is for you. Is God for you? We'll flesh out what that means with the questions that follow. First question, who can oppose? The implied answer is no one can oppose God with us. Second question, what will God withhold from us? What will God withhold from us? Or to put it another way, what won't he give us? Is there anything that we need that God won't supply for us? It's the next question Paul brings up. What will God withhold from us? Verse 32. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? How much does God love his people? You can know the answer to that question by how much God was willing to give up for his people. He offered up that which he prized most, his own son, Jesus Christ. That is proof of God's love for you. He offered up his own son. That's language taken from Genesis 22, from the Abraham and Isaac episode, where Abraham is called to give up his own son, and Abraham is willing to do that, faith in God. And then what happens? God intervenes, holds back Abraham's hand, provides a ram in the place of Isaac, so Abraham does not need to give up his own son. Paul's using that language and he says, he who did not give up his own son. There was nobody to hold God's hand back when he offered up his own son in our place. What could possibly, rationally motivate God to do this? There are many who question this part of the gospel story that God would offer up his own son. How could a father possibly give up his son, Jesus Christ? What could possibly motivate him to do this? The only answer is the answer found in a verse we all know in John 3.16. For God loved the world. They gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. God's motivation in giving up his own son was love for a fallen world, for you, for me. This is how much he loves you. He is willing to offer up his own son. 19th century preacher Octavius Winslow asked, Who delivered up Jesus to die? Who delivered up Jesus to die? Not Judas for money, not Pilate for fear, Not the Jews for envy, but the Father for love. Knowing that, Paul's logic is easy to follow. It's an argument from greater to lesser. If God is willing to give up this, then won't he give you whatever else you need? If I'm willing to give you all of my life savings, won't I also give you the change in my pocket? 
The answer is yes, of course you would. If God is willing to give up his own son for you, then he will give up anything else that you need. And you can be assured that whatever it is that you do need, God will provide for you. He won't give you everything you want, but he will give you everything you need for life and godliness and eternal life in him. He will give you that which you need, which means that there's never been a moment in your life, if you are in Christ, if you are in God, there's never been a moment, no matter how hard your life has been, no matter the trial, there's never been a moment where God was lacking in his provision for you. There's never been a moment where God wasn't giving you what you needed, even in your most troubling day. Paul says in Romans 8, 28, just a couple verses earlier, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. That in every circumstance, you can never say to the living God, you haven't given me enough. If we go to him, he will give you what you need. And every time we've complained about what God has given us, it's shown that we don't know his heart his desire for us. The cross is proof that God will give you what you need because he loves you. He is a good father who knows how to give good gifts to his children. What will God withhold from us? Nothing. And if we are in Christ, we can stand up to any opposition. That's where Paul goes next. We can stand up to any opposition, stand up to any accusation. Because the next question Paul asks is, who can accuse us? Who can accuse us? Paul now brings us into the context of a courtroom with accusations laid before you and I. Who can accuse us? Verse 33. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Can anyone bring any accusation of guilt before God's people? Can anyone make a legal charge against those who are in Christ? And again, in the same, some sense, we could say, well, yeah, multiple people can. The world, the flesh, and the devil can all accuse us. In fact, Revelation 12.10 says that Satan lives to accuse, constantly accuses those who are in Christ. We can imagine Satan before God bringing accusations against us. Look at these so-called Christians. Look at their sin, their selfishness, their lust, their greed, their arrogance, their hatred, their hypocrisy. Lord, will you really save them? Will you really love them? And we follow often with Satan. We make the same accusations against ourselves. We accuse ourselves. And maybe you've experienced this in your own mind, cognizant of your own sin, your own failings. You bring the accusation to yourself. How could God love me? With all that I've done, knowing who I am, how could I claim to be a follower of God? How could I even start to believe in him and follow him? Like, I can't be a Christian. With everything I've done, with who I am. We bring accusations against ourselves. It's the language of the enemy that we've adopted. And the world makes the same accusations. Look at those Christians, their hypocrisy, their hatred. Wouldn't the world be better out, better off without religion, better off without Christians? I hear that accusation. I hear that charge. It's nothing new. Accusations were made against Christians from the beginning. In ancient Rome, this letter is written to Christians in Rome. That's why it's called Romans. And in ancient Rome, there are often accusations 
leveled against the Christian group. Christians were called cannibals. Do you know why? Because they held these secret meetings where they consumed body and blood. Christians were called sexually immoral. Do you know why? Because these husbands and wives lived together, but they called each other brother and sister. These taboo sexual relationships they apparently had. Christians were called atheists. Why? Because they didn't bow down to all the Roman gods. And many believe that the Christians were a blight upon society. The reason for society's downfall because we would have success in this empire as long as we worship the gods and we have this group of Christians that refuse to worship them. So all of our downfalls of society must be on them. This is the reason society is so bad. This is the reason our world is so bad. It's because all these Christians are bringing us down. These accusations against the body of Christ, against Christians, are nothing new. Christians have always faced these accusations. And what Paul tells us here, writing in that context, is no accusation will stick in the end. That people bring charges, the world may bring charges, you yourself may bring charges against Christ and his people, but they will not stick, because why? It is God who justifies. God is the judge, our Father is the judge over all the universe, and he has declared us in Christ not guilty. We are declared not guilty. Is that a verdict we earned? No. Is it because we actually are really good in the end? No. We have been given a declaration, a verdict by the judge of not guilty because we have the righteousness of Christ. If we are in Christ, then we have his righteousness. We are justified as not guilty only because he is not guilty. Romans 5.17 says, If we believe in Jesus and are united with him, we receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness. Righteousness is a gift given to us, not something we earned. So when we stand before God and the judge and he declares us not guilty, it's only because, not because we're great, only because we're with Christ and we have his righteousness. And there's nothing we can do to be any more or less righteous in Christ because it's not our righteousness that is offered up before God. John Bunyan once explained how we always have Christ's righteousness, so we will never be less righteous or more guilty. Bunyan says, I saw with the eyes of my soul Jesus Christ at God's right hand. There, I say, is my righteousness. So that wherever I was, or whatever I was doing, God could not say of me, he wants my righteousness. For that was just before him. I also saw, moreover, that it was not my good frame of heart that made my righteousness better, nor yet my bad frame that made my righteousness worse. For my righteousness was Jesus Christ himself, the same yesterday, today, and forever. I expect some of you here are not believers, and I'm super happy you're here. I'm glad you're here. You need to know what we believe about judgment at the end. We do not think as Christians that God will accept us because we are so wonderful and that we live life just trying to build up our case before him. 
More cookies on the positive side of the scale. Less sin. That way I can really earn God's love. That's not how we view it. That's not the gospel. The gospel is Jesus is righteous. We're united with him by grace, by faith as a gift. And so before God, we plead his righteousness alone. And we will never be in Christ more or less righteous than him himself. We have his righteousness, so we are justified as a gift by God, and therefore no accusation in the end, no matter how true, will stick. No accusation will stand, and therefore we will never be condemned. And that's the question that Paul next asks in this courtroom motif. Who can condemn us? Who can condemn us? It's a slightly different question than who can accuse. Who can then condemn in the end? Verse 34. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Question similar to who can accuse. Now it's about who can condemn. Who can be the final judge who condemns us? And Paul doesn't answer. We know. Nobody can. Nobody can condemn us because God is the judge overall. They may kill the body, but they cannot condemn us. Why? Because of what Christ has done. Look at the four things Paul lays out here that Jesus has done and is doing to ensure we will not be condemned. First, Christ died. It's what we celebrated on Good Friday, that Christ died on the cross, and on the cross he took our sins. He paid the penalty that was due us. We can't be condemned because our condemnation has already been delivered. It was put on Jesus Christ. He has been condemned in our place. So we do not have to be. So first, Christ died for our sins. Second, Christ was raised, and this is what we celebrate today, that Jesus Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. He is up from the grave. He is ruling and reigning. He is, we will not be condemned to die but we'll live forever raised with him. It's why we celebrate the resurrection, because in the resurrection we have life with him. Then having been raised, it's not just that Jesus was raised. The resurrection in and of itself almost isn't enough. It isn't sufficient, you could say, in and of itself. More than that, Christ was raised and ascended and exalted to the right hand of God where he rules in power. Christ is exalted on high. This is what Stephen the first Christian martyr saw. Acts 7.56. Stephen was accused of blasphemy, condemned to stoning, but that was not the end of his story because he sees. Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. He may have been condemned to death in this world, but he was raised to live with Christ, exalted on high forever. And Stephen and anybody else who is in Christ is secure because of what Christ is doing now. What Paul says, fourth, Jesus is interceding for us. Jesus at the right hand of God intercedes. You can kind of think of uh, the king's advisor, somebody who has the king's ear. If you're familiar with Lord of the Rings, do you remember the character Grima Wormtongue, who had the ear of King Theoden and poisoned him and manipulated him and condemned others in the fellowship and twisted and manipulated the king? He had the ear of the king and spoke to him. 
Jesus does the opposite on our behalf. As you and I one day will, and as we always are in some sense, before the judge of all, before God, and as Satan lays accusations and the world lays accusations, even accusations we might bring to ourselves, we have Jesus at the right hand of God saying, no, that one's mine. He belongs to me. She belongs to me. Exalted at the right hand, interceding for us, advising the king, they have my righteousness there with me. And in that we are secure because Christ lives and rules and reigns on our behalf. It's not that we are innocent. It's that Jesus pleads his innocence for us. And if Jesus, the King, resurrected and ruling and reigning, intercedes for us, who can condemn us? No one. That leads, lastly, Paul's final question, verses 35 through 39. It's the question that the other four questions are leading up to. The question is, what can separate us from God's love in Christ? What can separate us from God's love in Christ? The last few questions were judicial, questions of innocence. This question is personal. It's a question of affection, intimacy, relationship. What can separate us from God's love in Christ? Verse 35 Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine, nakedness or danger or sword, as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Previous questions were about innocence before a judge. This question is about relationship before a father. Will this father abandon you? Will this father stop loving you? Will this father turn his back on you? Will you ever be without the love of God? Will he ever be far from you? Will you ever fall out of favor with God if you are in Jesus Christ? Paul explores potential answers. Could there be anything that comes in the way of God's love for you? How about mortal and existential dangers? Trials, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword. Can any of these things separate you from the love of God as you experience them? And these aren't just hypothetical experiences for Christians. Remember, Paul is writing to the Romans. These were real threats. So Paul wrote this letter in about 57 AD. A few years later, in 64 AD, there was a great fire in Rome lasted almost a week, burned about three-quarters of the city. Some blamed or thought it was caused by Nero, the emperor, that he had done this for amusement, set fire to things. Nero, the emperor, in turn, blamed who? 
It was the Christians. And he instituted one of the first great organized persecutions against the church. Christians were ordered to be put to death for it. Tacitus, an ancient Roman historian, wrote, To stop the rumor, he, Emperor Nero, falsely charged with guilt and punished with the most fearful tortures the persons commonly called Christians who were generally hated. And Christians were punished with tortures. Nero had Christians covered with animal skins and chased by dogs. He had Christians nailed to crosses. He had Christians tied to wooden stakes, smothered in pitch and oil, and burned, and had musicians play a concert around them. The burning Christians became known as Nero's torches or Roman candles as they lit up the night. God's people have faced persecution for their allegiance to him throughout history, and this is nothing new. It goes back to God's people in Israel. It's why one of their songs of worship, Psalm 44:22, which Paul quotes, says, For your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. God's people have a history of facing trial, danger, and sword. So Paul asks, can any of these things separate us from the love of God? And the answer is no. Why? Because we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. More than conquerors means super conquerors or completely victorious. It implies two things, at least. To be more than a conqueror or completely victorious means that if you're a Christian in Christ, you're not going to just barely get by into heaven. I've heard this language used by Christians. I'm just going to get in by the skin of my teeth. No, that's not how it works. Why? Because Christ doesn't provide partial salvation. Because Christ's death was complete. He was completely sinless. His death was completely sufficient. The cross paid for all of our sins. And his resurrection was a complete resurrection. It was a complete victory over death. The tomb wasn't partway empty. It was fully empty. Christ was fully alive. His rule is complete in heaven. So your salvation is not partial. Your salvation is complete in Jesus Christ. You are more than a conqueror in Jesus Christ. You will not go limping into heaven. You will come on the grace of Jesus Christ fully and without any hesitation accepted before God because of Christ's complete work. It is not partial. It is complete. And so you're more than a conqueror. And because of that, it also means that any of these trials that get in the way will not ultimately get in the way. In fact, they will be exactly what God uses to bring you into his eternal home. This is what it means that we are more than conquerors. It not only means that we conquer the trials in life or are victorious over them, it means those trials in life are the very things that God uses to secure you in Him and His love. Those things don't take you from the love of God. They draw you into the love of God if you are in Christ. It's what Paul said. All things work for good for those who love God. We are more than conquerors in Christ because God uses even the things that might conquer us to bring us to him. So can these things separate you from the love of God? No. They are what God uses. So neither death nor life, 
Any circumstance that you might find yourself in, even death, cannot separate you from God's love. Angels nor rulers, there's no power in this world, nothing that you might shake before, nothing that might intimidate you. There's no power in this world, supernatural or natural, that can separate you from the love of God. Neither things present nor things to come. There's no time in history. There's no future moment or event that will separate you from the love of God. There won't be a time that things will change and God will change his mind and say, you know what, maybe now I don't love these people as much. If you are in Christ, if God is for you, then no thing present or thing to come will separate you from his love. Neither height nor depth, no place above, place below, can separate you from God's love in Christ. In this world, you will face loss and separation from many things. You'll be separated from friends and family. You will lose health and finances. You'll be separated from home, from place. But there is nothing in all of creation that can separate you from the love of God. You can do an exercise with me. Kids, you can join in with me on this. Think of something in creation. This building, that's part of creation. Your chair, a monkey, your parents. I'll put those two back to back for a reason. Um, Name something that's part of creation. Time itself. Nothing in all of creation can get in the way of the love of God. Because God is not part of creation. He is outside of creation. He is Lord over creation. And he loves his people. And nothing that is part of his creation can get in the way of that. And I would say, you are part of creation. And I would say that you cannot separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Listen to what I'm saying. If God has set his love on you, if you are born again and the Spirit is upon you, if you are in Christ, not even you can take yourself away from the love of God. I actually think that's Paul's point in all of this. Because famine, nakedness, danger, sword, persecution, accusation, all of those things are the types of things that cause people to walk away from their faith. They're the very things that the enemy uses to draw people away from faith in God. And what Paul is saying is that if God is for you, if you are in Christ, none of those things will work. And he will keep you by his love. God's love is so strong and secure that not only will he not leave you, you won't leave him. That's the extent of God's love. Tom Schreiner says, Paul is not only saying that Christ will still loves people when persecution arrives, although that is doubtless true, He is also saying that the love of Christ is so powerful that believers will not forsake him. In every ordeal of life, God's love will hold you fast. We've asked five questions. We have our answers. Who can oppose us? No one. What will God withhold from us? Nothing. 
Who can accuse us? No one. Who can condemn us? No one. What can separate us from God's love in Christ? Nothing. Because if God is for us, nothing can overcome us. And the question is, is God for you? Do you know him? Have you committed your life to him in Jesus Christ? Do you know who Jesus Christ is? Are you trying to fight this world on your own and failing? Or have you given your life over to Jesus Christ and found victory in him? If you don't know, my appeal to you this morning is to know who Jesus is. That is your only hope for life in the end. If you want to know more about Jesus, Russ talked about Christianity Explored. We have classes coming up to help you understand who Jesus is. Talk to one of us. Talk to whoever brought you. Read your Bible. Know who Jesus is. And you will have life no matter what comes. We're going to sing in a few moments a song, Christ the Lord is Risen Today. It captures the confidence we have in Jesus' cross. One of the lines says, Ours the cross, the grave, the skies. Meaning, if you are in Christ, you'll experience his cross and suffering. You'll experience death. But then you have the skies and glory forever. This is the promise we have in Jesus Christ. Would you pray with me? Our Father and God, we thank you for the salvation we have in your Son. Pray, Lord, that it be real to us, that it be a comfort to us, that we would know your love, that nothing can get in the way of your love, no matter what trials we face and whatever um, ordeals we have, troubles we experience, and we all do. Lord, I pray in the midst of them that we would know that we have a good Father who is watching over us and has a glorious future ahead of us in Christ. Lord, and I pray that we would um, all find that place trusting in your Son not in ourselves. Thank you for your grace and kindness. Thank you for the resurrection of your Son, which proves that we have life in him. Amen.